Hey everyone, I'm your host Tom Shaughnessy and welcome back to Chain Reaction, a research-driven podcast that's a part of Delphi Digital. If you're not on Delphi's research portal, you're missing out on the critical analysis read by the top minds in the crypto space, so be sure to check it out. One quick housekeeping item, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. I may personally hold tokens mentioned on the podcast and you can view our show notes below for our complete disclosures. With that, let's jump into the episode. Before we jump in, we want to thank the Cosmos community for their sponsorship in making this episode possible. There are several projects building inter-blockchain communication protocols, but there's one that's currently built. Cosmos.network is on a mission to link every blockchain. Well-known projects like Terra, Band, Kava, and Secret use Cosmos and the Cosmos Hub to connect to every other chain in their network. The Cosmos Hub is completed and launched, and you could visit Cosmos.network today to check it out. The Cosmos Hub brings us that much closer to Web 3.0 and we thank the Cosmos community for sponsoring the Delphi podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Delphi's Clubhouse. I'm your host, Tom Shaughnessy. Today, I have on quite the fun power crew, kind of a moment we've been waiting for for a long time, which is ThorChain's mainnet launch, MCCN. We have a handful of people on. We've gone from Delphi. We have Rob. We have Tushar from Multicoin. We have the whole Shapeshift crew, Eric John Michael, and we have Chad himself from uh, ThorChain. So, I think we'll just go in order of the clubhouse room. Everyone will just give a you know thirty second intro or less, and then we'll dive into uh, Thorchain. So, John, let's start with you. Sure. Hey, everybody. Uh, my name's John. I'm a chief product officer and co-founder here at Shapeshift. And yeah, been, I've been at this for about seven plus years now with Shapeshift, and just uh, really excited to be here and excited to talk about Thorchain. Michael, you're up. Hey, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm Michael Perklin. I'm the Chief Information Security Officer of Shapeshift. Uh, so I focus on the security side of things, but I also dabble a lot in research and development, which is what ultimately led me to ThorChain. My passion over the last six months has been purely ThorChain on the personal side. And when Shapeshift made the decision to get involved, I couldn't have been happier. So I'm, I'm happy to be here on stage. Awesome. Thanks so much. Hey guys, my name is Eric Voorhees, founder and CEO of Shapeshift. Suffice to say, ThorChain is one of the coolest, you know, entire projects in the crypto world that I have seen ever since 2011 when I first learned of Bitcoin. It had that same magic that I felt when I learned about Bitcoin for the first time, and that was a very special feeling to come back. So it's been very, very fun to be integrating this behind the scenes in Shapeshift as we migrate to a DEX paradigm ourselves. And it came along, you know, right in time for us to start to start doing that. So, you know, Thirteen, I think, is one of those projects which is kind of difficult to understand at first. And so my hope with the, the clubhouse here is that the, the basics can get covered and people can understand what this is and, and why it's important. Hey, everybody. Uh, what's going on? My name is Rob Payone. I am the founder of Proof of Talent, which is a blockchain recruiting firm. But Kind of prior to that, worked at AirSwap, which is a decentralized exchange built on Ethereum, and actually came across ThorChain through the Delphi research and just like immediately clicked for me. So I am just a 
pretty passionate. I guess you'd call a community member, not really building too much on it, have been participating in the ecosystem really since September's launch. So pretty excited for today and, and for the future with everything. Hey everybody, uh, my name is Chad Barraford. Uh, I'm the technical lead on the ThorChain project. Most of my time and effort is in designing and building the, the core protocol and the, the, the blockchain itself. And so I'm here to, to talk more about the project. And, and obviously today is a really exciting day, the launch of multi-chain. Multi, uh, chain. So I'm super excited. Thanks so much, Chad. Yeah, what about you? Yeah. Hi, my name is Jan. I'm a co-founder and managing partner of Delphi Digital. And uh, yeah, we, we've been longtime fans of Thorchain. Really excited to uh, see it really come to life now and, and launch with, with Mainnet. It's awesome to share. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Tushar Jain. I'm co-founder and managing partner at Multicoin Capital. We're an investment firm devoted to the crypto space, and we're big supporters of Thorchain. Recently published uh, a report describing uh, you know, why we're excited about Thorchain, and you can read that on our website at multicoin.capital. Awesome. Thanks so much, Tushar. Well, guys, let's, um, let's keep this conversational. Feel free to ask each other questions, you know, the whole nine yards. Chad, why don't you just give us your your sixty seconds on on what Thorchain is and, and just the impact of the multi chain launch today? Yeah, sure. So um, Thorchain, in, in many respects, uh, it's bridging between uh, chains in a decentralized way. And I think this is the first in the industry. So you you can move uh, well. In some sense, blockchains themselves are isolated islands. They exist onto themselves and have very little or no relationship with any other blockchains in, in the crypto space. Uh, and this is inherently a, a major um, flaw in the entire uh, ecosystem of crypto. Uh, and Thorchain is effectively creating highways between these blockchains, so you can easily move your uh, your assets or your or your wealth from one chain to another without needing to ask permission or worrying about being censored or any of these things. It's a completely decentralized protocol. So, in some ways, you could think of it from a more simplistic perspective of its of cross chain Uniswap. So you can swap Bitcoin to Ethereum, Ethereum to Litecoin, Litecoin to BNB, and BNB to Bitcoin Cash without uh, going through any KYC process. That's a very significant contribution, in my view, to the, the greater crypto sphere, uh, allowing it to be a more unison ecosystem rather than isolated islands. That's what I'm really excited, excited about and to see how that kind of the community as a whole takes that and runs with it. That's awesome, Chad. And, and Shapeshift Crew, I don't know who wants to take this, but can you kind of contextualize what Chad's describing on Thorchain and how it works with Shapeshift because I feel like you guys give some really you know just easy examples for people to understand on how this all works. Yeah, I'll I'll take that. Um, so I'll go down history lane here a little bit. So Shapeshift launched in 2014 as a way of converting digital assets in a non-custodial way. So this was you know back in the wake of Mt. Gox, and um, I wanted to build something that would protect people by design. By not holding their funds. And uh, while Shapeshift was non-custodial, the way that trades worked was that a user would send coin A, like Bitcoin, to us, and we would send coin B, like a Litecoin, back to them from our own wallets. So it was vastly safer, but we were still an intermediary uh, for the time of the trade. That pulled us into the whole regulated world of KYC and um, compliance. And we have been desperately searching for a way to solve that problem. DEXs in the Ethereum world have been around for a while. And so we had been integrating those the end of last year. And we didn't have a way of allowing people to trade in a decentralized manner unless they were only doing 
Ethereum tokens, which is not sufficient. Like that's leaving out the most important asset of all. So, um, so Thorchain's integration basically allows us to get back to our roots of what we used to do of having this frictionless experience where someone can trade one asset on one chain to another asset of another chain, no custodial risk, no intermediary at all, no financial regulation applying to that model. And uh, because Thorchain works across chains, we can do this you know, for all the major assets. So for us, just from a selfish perspective, this is incredibly helpful um, to our to our business. And I imagine that this infrastructure is going to help a lot of people. Yeah, I just add on that. I mean, Thorchain to us is really the type of thing that I think when we first built Shapeshift, we didn't, you know, it, it, this wasn't necessarily possible yet. A lot of the tech that Thorchain is being built on uh, just didn't exist in 2014. And we all, our goal with Shapeshift was always to allow people to trade in the most non-custodial, trust-minimized way possible. Um, and, you know, some of that was a reaction to things like Mt. Gox and just the convenience factor that crypto should allow. And I think Thorchain is really kind of realizing that vision. And as we realized um, what it is and what it could do, it just became obvious to us that this is exactly what um, Shapeshift should integrate with to allow these kind of cross-chain decentralized non-custodial swaps. And so, yeah, we're very, very excited as a result of that. And in many ways, I feel like Thorchain has helped bring about the vision of Shapeshift that we had all the way back in 2014 that made something like this a reality. Yeah, no, you guys have reinvented Shapeshift uh, and are absolutely crushing it. And just adopting Thorchain is just incredible. I mean, just switching over to Shar, from the kind of investment perspective, what got you first excited or most excited about Thorchain to begin with? So one of my core investment theses is, is I really like looking for self-reinforcing loops or, or, or cycles. And I saw that with Thorchain in a way that was pretty exciting. I think most people in DeFi are, are pretty aware of kind of the, the feedback loop that exists when you have liquidity mining rewards, which then increases liquidity in your DeFi protocol, which then attracts more volume and attracts more fees to the system, which can then help make the liquidity mining rewards more valuable and so on and so forth. And I think that was pretty valuable. But in addition to that, Thorchain had another very important feedback loop, which was attractive to me, which was around security, where as there is more uh, transaction volume in the Thorchain network that drives more fees to the actual node operators who then basically create more demand for Rune in order to compete to earn those fees. And that makes the system more secure, which then makes it safer for more people to transact using the system. And so when I saw the dual feedback loops there, that got me pretty excited because I saw them feeding back into one main thing, which is more transaction volume on Thorchain. That plus the fundamental just love of the product of having these decentralized um, trades that existed across various blockchains without a trusted intermediary like Eric was talking about, uh, really combined to, to give us a lot of conviction in this. Tishar, I know what you mean uh, when you say um, that, that everything just sort of aligned. And when Eric mentioned earlier that uh, he had a feeling after learning and understanding Thorchain that he hadn't felt since Bitcoin, I have to say I, I agree 100%. I, I also felt the same thing. And I think it's because um, Bitcoin itself is more than just the tech it's built on. Yes, there are elliptic curves. Yes, there are digital hashes. And there's some kind of a database that stores a variety of block records. But Bitcoin is a hell of a lot more than just the tech that it's built on. 
And that's because the way that Satoshi put Bitcoin together, he figured out a way, or she or they, Satoshi figured out a way to align incentives along with these technical components that made the whole system of Bitcoin worth a hell of a lot more than the sum of its parts. And that incentive alignment piece, if I ever was in a room with Satoshi, I'd I'd love to ask him, her, them, uh, how did you figure out this particular set of incentives? Because it is the incentives of the people who interact with Bitcoin that keep it in check. And when I um, was going down the the rabbit hole with, um, with ThorChain, uh, at first blush, okay, a lot of this tech, you know, okay, well, there's threshold signatures here. Okay, it's observing a chain there. It, it wasn't really that um, interesting. But once I started to see how the, the, the four types of actors that, inter- that interact with ThorChain and how they interact with ThorChain, whether you are a swapper who just wants to trade A for B, or you are a liquidity provider who wants to earn yield on your Bitcoin, or you are a node operator who wants to run the infrastructure to, to, to earn fees that way, or you're an arbitrager just looking for opportunities to, to make a little bit of money uh, balancing the books. The, the incentives that went into the design of ThorChain make all of ThorChain uh, worth a hell of a lot more than the sum of its parts. One of my first questions was, well, why the hell could this all be done on Bitcoin? And uh, why did the Rune token come into play? But once you understand how the Rune token uh, works within those four actors, you realize that this truly is worth a hell of a lot more than the sum of its parts. And um, that feeling of a, just a beautifully designed system that well, this is really going to work when it, when it takes off, uh, I think is what um, gave me that reminder to Bitcoin back in 2010. It's a great caller to Shara and Michael. And, and Chad, just to circle back to you, I mean, I don't, I don't exactly know what to ask you at this point. We've, we've all been talking with you for so long. I mean, like, what's your take on, on multi-chain launch? Like, what are you feeling? What, what's the status? You know, have you slept all nine yards? <laughs> uh, well, it's it's been a long road for sure. And uh, a lot of hours. I, I remember... Um, I was living in Australia with some of the other team members and I was working like 9 a.m. to midnight, seven days a week, just trying to progress and push this project further and and deliver on what the white paper was promising. Because we all knew that um, if if we could actually deliver this thing, that it's it's a unicorn, right? It it is solving a hair on fire problem within the crypto sphere that that needed to be solved. And somebody had to solve it and the sooner the better. And we felt we had a design that, that did that not only from a technological perspective, but also from an um, economics perspective. So it's been a long road for sure. I joined the team myself in mid, I think it was June or July of 2019. Uh, At that time, the project had, you know, had an earlier attempt in 2018 that, that didn't pan out in part because it didn't have the right team at that time, in part because the technology wasn't there yet. We hadn't had threshold signatures, for example, quite yet at that point. Just a, we just needed some maturity in some sense of the, the greater sphere. And so when I came in, there was kind of a, a, a rebirth of, of the, the concept and a lot of the design and implementation stuff has changed significantly since the first implementation. But it's been such a long road for us and it's so been so exhausting in some sense, but also extremely exciting. You know, this is like the vision we've all had and it's like finally before us. And I can't even mention like how many times I saw on you know Twitter or whatever where people are saying, oh, you know, if it works, it's going to be like huge, it's going to be ginormous. So then, but yeah, who knows if they could pull it off or not? <laughs> but in my head, I'm like, you know, I knew that we were going to pull it off, not just me, but just like the greater 
uh, uh, community around uh, around Thorchain. And, you know, it's it's comprised of probably over twelve different teams doing all sorts of different components to this larger ecosystem of the Thorchain uh, network and you know that entire system. And I just contribute to one particular component of it per se. And so it's it's so exciting to finally see it launch. Uh, I am exhausted. Uh, actually, my wife's going to give birth in <laughs> probably in a few days, so I'm going to be more exhausted in the near future. <laughs> but uh, I'm so so excited, but also so so nervous at the same time because it's a, it's a live network. It's, it still needs time to prove itself and, and prove its reliability, its security, its resiliency, and all these things. And so that that first few weeks are going to be probably the most you know tenuous in some ways, and to make sure you know everything operates exactly how it's designed and how it's implemented. Hey, Chad, going off that for a second, could you kind of give the quick overview of the different stages that Thorchain has been in? Because I think that's been confusing for a lot of people. It's been in like different kinds of networks that weren't quite testnet and weren't quite mainnet. Can you kind of run people through those phases? Yeah, I mean, the earliest form, I guess you could say the first stage, you want to call it that, was testnet for single chain chaos net, which was, I think, like 10 months ago or so, or 11 months ago, something like this. And that was, actually building an environment that you could actually do swaps in a testnet environment and, and, and churn and have new operators come into system and old ones leave and the whole kind of process uh, fundamentally works. And so then we wanted it to, as a team, we wanted to put something out there earlier on and not just kind of sit in a, in a, in a closed room by ourselves for too long of a period. So we decided as a team to, to release what we called single chain chaos net which was about nine months ago. Uh, and that only interacted with Binance Chain. And the reason why we selected Binance Chain for this is because, well, one, it didn't really have any DeFi at the time. It, it, there was an entire community of people who had no access to DeFi at all. Two, it had several coins within that ecosystem, uh, various BEP2 assets. Uh, and three, it was one of the arguably one of the easiest coins to, or uh, blockchains rather, to integrate with because... Um, you don't have to worry about, you know, uh, double spend attacks necessarily or reorgs or any of these really kind of complicated aspects of, you know, proof of work change like uh, chains like Bitcoin or Ethereum for that matter. Uh, it was just a lot simpler to do it and kind of a lower hanging fruit in some sense. But it could be launched in a way that we could actually uh, show that, that the technology legitimately works. We could show that the um, economic model that is designed to secure the assets, you know, would work. We had, I think, unless my look, we had like over $500 million locked up in TVL on the single chain gas net. Uh, we could show that the slip base fee actually does yield um, higher uh, ROI for uh, liquidity providers, yet actually have a smaller average transaction size or, or transaction uh, cost, uh, a swap fee for your average person swapping in that network. That can be, we wanted to be able to show that in real life, not just on a white paper or on an audit, but does it actually work in when the rubber meets the road in a sense? And so over the last nine months, uh, that's just kind of firming up that that part of the technology and that part of the economic design. And in the meantime, we've been working on uh, you know major new features for the new net that we just launched today. Largely that was support for more chain. So that's Bitcoin, Litecoin, uh, Ethereum, Bitcoin Cash, and BNB. We wanted to be able to support single-sided uh, asset staking, so you can just provide the Bitcoin, and you don't need to touch or you know ruin it all if you don't really want to. It's completely up to you. We wanted to actually move the ruin asset off of Ethereum and Binance and move it onto its own native chain, which actually made things a lot simpler in some ways. We wanted to do a lots of different changes to system, permanent loss protection. 
um, all the stuff that we thought was key to make uh, ThorChain not just a great cross-chain ex- uh, exchange and, and be able to you know be able to to move your Bitcoin to Ethereum or your Ethereum to Bitcoin, but also provide a system that is going to last for like many years because it has really great features that most other even Ethereum-based uh, DEXs like permanent loss protection, for example, like most of them don't have that. And so you're, you're removing the, 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 um, the, the risks involved with providing liquidity to a network such as this by offering something like that. So we had that vision to do so. And so we wanted to test that for this thing uh, for both the chain a, a month or two ago, uh, found a bunch of bugs, squashed them all we found. Uh, and we just felt like we kind of tapped that tree as much as we could in terms of what fruit it could give us. And then I said, you know what? We've found everything we can find at this point. The only way you can find more issues or bugs is to actually launch it in the real world. And that's what we did today. Uh, we're also encouraging people not to make humongous swaps across the network at this, this time. Let's give the network some time to, to see how it behaves in the real world uh, with real assets. Maybe we'll find some bugs we haven't discovered in testnet or before. So uh, we encourage people not to go too crazy off the bat. But I think over the coming weeks and months, uh, that will obviously Less, less the case. Hey, Chad, it was an excellent overview. And I mean, one thing that I think we, we need to talk about here, and I'll throw this over to Jan and we'll see who could go off afterwards. But I mean, just token economy value curl is so important to projects. We see so many where it just doesn't make sense, doesn't work. Jan, could you go off a bit on just Rune's token econ about, you know, not only the incentive pendulum, but why this token isn't forkable, how it's using nodes, how it's using pools. Um, that would be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think when we, we first stumbled on it in uh, in late 2019, uh, this was kind of before DeFi was really um, as much of a thing as it is now. And, and so, you know, the idea that you'd be able to earn yield on idle assets, regardless of kind of what chain they'd be on, was really fascinating and, and really drew us in as just, uh, you know, initial use case. And as we dug in, we understood, you know, the, the token design, uh, starting with like the incentive pendulum in, in terms of uh, how security and, and, and fees can skew depending on whether or not there's too many assets uh, being used for liquidity provision relative to the amount of kind of ruined staked in nodes. So when we really dove in, and this is also, I think, when you started to see application-specific blockchains come into the play. And I think those really had issues with, with security, particularly in terms of uh, how, how security would scale with with adoption and price, and so you know, everything. A lot, most of most things were built on Ethereum at the time, so they were able to leverage the the security of Ethereum. Whereas these had the advantage of you know throughput and fees, but had to have their own security model. So when we started to dive in further, and we realized that not only does this uh, security model work, but it also scales with adoption. Whereas more assets are added for liquidity provision. Naturally, the nodes will have to gain a certain amount of value based on the amount of rune locked up and, and the amount of fees that are diverted to them to kind of going back to that the pendulum idea. And so uh, I think, you know, we were really blown away by, by how it all how it all worked. And, and we thought the reflexivity worked really well in, in terms of ensuring that as users came in, it, it, it grew liquidity and grew pool depth, which then it all like, and then, you know, and another facet I think was really interesting at the time when this was AMMs were, I'd say, was still in their infancy. And we saw XYK was kind of the understood norm. And, and so we had the CLP model that kind of came about. And, and just as a back, uh, as kind of a, a small summary, the, the, the fee model for uh, Thorchain, the, the, uh, the fee that you pay LPs is dynamic. 
and it scales as a function of your transaction size relative to the pool. So as pools got deeper, your fee would actually decrease over time. And we thought that was really brilliant to allow for competition to to really, I think, DoorChain to really uh, take advantage of, of the competition by having lower fees as these pools scaled. And so, you know, in our analysis, we, we kind of remodeled a lot of existing pools and, and kind of the dynamics there and, and ran up to the CLP model. And, and it, it was fun to see a lot of the skepticism on, on Twitter, but you know, it ended up being fairly unfounded based on just kind of the lack of, of DD that was done and, and also the results that we've seen with uh, the existing design. And so, you know, we thought the novelty of, of all of these elements and, and uh, was, was really kind of outstanding. And, and so that, that's kind of why we really dove in. And um, I, I do think that the, the CLP model itself also helps with, or not that I think, but it, it does really improve the impermanent loss kind of situation where rather than um, having this path independent element, um, there is path dependency, but it, it, the ARB, the ability for arbitrageurs is kind of hindered by, by the fact that the ARP can't be closed in one trade. And so we thought that that was a, a really interesting element that uh, required patience out of the ARBs and then made for a better experience for LPs, both in terms of IL and, and the fees that they saw. And so we thought all of that combined was, was a really compelling uh, value proposition when a, lo- a lot of this really didn't exist at the time. Yeah, to, to build on that, I remember when I first looked at Thorchain, there were a few things that, that really attracted me in terms of mechanics. The first was, uh, like Jan mentioned, the, the CLP, um, and, which fancy way of saying your fees on your trade change based on how much slippage you cause. Uh, and I saw that as a really interesting way to protect liquidity providers in the system from impermanent loss suffered by uh, arbitrageurs coming in. Um, and, and I thought that was really cool. But then everyone's concern was, well, if you're going to make the fees higher for larger trades, then won't everyone just break up their trades into small trades? And, you know, actually the answer is no, because the system actually orders the trades based on how much fees they're paying. Um, and it couldn't do that if it was building on another platform because you don't control the order that transactions go into a block on Ethereum if you're Uniswap. You just don't have that power. But on Thorchain, you can. And so the combination of slippage-based fees and then ordering transactions based on how much slippage uh, and fees that they generate was a really, really fascinating combination. And I think it created you know the right incentives for the system. Uh, and so we were really interested in that. And then the other big kind of mechanism that I found to be inspiring and really powerful was the incentive pendulum and the way the system rewards liquidity providers versus node operators in a variable proportion based on you know how the what the state of the network is at the time if there's too much capital in pools and not enough bonded well it'll reward nodes more in order to improve security or if there's too much security and everyone's bonded but no one is actually providing liquidity well it will reward you for providing liquidity more and it comes back to the incentives. Um, and so those were some of the, the most important innovations, in my opinion, uh, about the design that got us pretty excited. And I still remember you know, having a call um, you know, for the first time with Chad and the rest of the team, and they described how all of the different mechanics interplayed with each other. And my mind was just completely blown. Yeah, to, to add one more thing to what Tushar was saying about the queue, that queue is not only does it, does it 
ensure that you know this puts pressure on people to to prioritize larger swaps over smaller swaps. It's, but it also makes sure that that uh, validators themselves can't like front run, right? You can't actually front run this network and be able to manipulate trades as you can on uh, and what we do see on other you know dexes on Ethereum because it's not a first come first serve system. It is. You know, the, the network orders the swaps in order of what provides the highest value for the network. And that's the one that gets swapped in that particular order. And you cannot manipulate that order at all. And so that's actually another one of the really kind of innovations of this project that um, is doing something that I don't think anybody else is. It's actually protecting against uh, front running entirely. Yeah, on, on that note, Chad, I think it might be worth you for the audience spending a little time just talking about like how the validators actually work. To me, this was one of the things that I think uh, was most interesting when I first learned about ThorChain was like everything about how these validators are anonymized, how they bond Rune, how that protects the network, how the churn process works. Um, maybe just going into a little more detail about how the validators work would be useful because I think that's really the key to what allows this thing to operate in a truly decentralized manner that really didn't exist before. Yeah, sure. So and the first thing about validators is that they're anonymous. Um, nobody's going, nobody is uh, exposing who they are. Anybody who's running a node in the world, uh, we encourage them to not expose who they are. I don't know who the, who, who the operators are at all personally, So, you know, which I prefer it that way, to be honest. Uh, that's the first and important part. We don't want people to be, you know, back channeling and, and back room making, you know, conversations and having brunch on a Sunday, uh, which has happened for other, you know, uh, chains out there, the Cosmos based chain. So we don't want to see that. We also advocate, uh, as a team, we advocate against of, uh, using, uh, collecting people's, um, uh, collateral into a single node that is against the, uh, economics to some degree to be encouraged that as well. I uh, not do that rather, but, each validator has to, has to come up with running a node, and running nodes is actually very complicated, so we don't encourage people who aren't you know, Linux-savvy or tech-savvy to, to, to get involved. It's a lot more complicated to run one of these nodes than it is you know, to run a Bitcoin node, for example, um, for sure. Um, but you have to walk up with your rune as your bond, and that bond is solely used, really, to, um, to, to A, secure the network because it effectively, in some sense, is like an axe hanging over your throat, that if you don't do what you're supposed to be doing, the network will come down on you hard and, uh, you know, at great cost to you if you don't behave in a way that is uh, in the best interest of the network itself. So that's a really important uh, concept as well. Um, the churning is an interesting thing that's very unique to this chain. I don't, I don't think anybody else is doing this quite yet. But because the the non-Thor chain assets, that the Bitcoin, the Ethereum, the Litecoin, all these things are, are managed through threshold signatures. Whenever the network chain changes and, and new people come in or old people leave the, the network, all those funds have to be migrated to a new wallet, if you want to call it that, and migrate all those funds. Uh, and that's so every time the network churns and, and people come in, people leave, the new wallets, all new Asgard vaults are created, the old ones are retired, and all the funds are programmatically uh, move from one's uh, um, old retiring vaults to the new active vaults uh, in order for this whole system to actually function and, and maintains its, its security. Yeah, that's it in a nutshell, I think. Yeah, the important pieces of the design that I think uh, really make it work well is that out of all of the nodes that are running, and each node, again, has its own copy of Bitcoin, its own copy of Ethereum, its own copy of everything, 
So each node is independently observing all the Ethereum transactions that come in and all the, the Bitcoin transactions that come in. And every time they see one, they write a small transaction to the, the ThorChain blockchain. And using Tendermint, uh, which is what the, uh, Cosmos is based on, there is now consensus amongst all the nodes that are operating that, hey, this Ethereum transaction really does exist. And, it, uh, and we can prove that somebody sent Ethereum in. Uh, now it's just a matter of sending them the Bitcoin out to, to affect their swap. Um, to, it's a really novel way of using Tendermint consensus, which has already been proven with something like Cosmos, but in a way that allows for swapping of any supported asset without trusting any middleman company or without dealing with any kind of wrapped tokens like the WBTC or the RenBTC that you have in, in Ethereum land. Uh, it's a brilliant, brilliant design. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of curious, Chad, just from the, like, at what point was the decision made to actually use the Cosmos SDK for ThorChain? Or, like, how did you all make that decision versus forking off something else? And what are the major benefits that that allowed? Because that, that seems like a hugely monumental decision at this point. Looking back. Yeah, I mean, that decision was made very early on. Um, uh, I think that was largely guided because I think the the Cosmos project was, is a very innovative project, in my opinion. When the first version of ThorChain was was attempted in 2018, Cosmos was around, but it, it wasn't quite what it is today. It was still very early days in many respects. Uh, and even Polkadot was way too early, even in 2019, to, to consider it as a, a viable option at that time. Um, I'm sure that'll change. Yeah, I don't think Cosmos launched until 2019. Yeah, it wasn't quite ready then. And so, and so like, uh, Cosmos, in some sense, uh, how I see it is that it's almost like it's doing for blockchain what like Ruby on Rails did for like web apps in some sense, and that it, it abstracts away a very complicated aspect of building blockchain, which is like the consensus aspect to it, the Tendermint aspect to it. And so you don't have to have like very deep understanding of like how consensus is actually reached in order to build a Cosmos app. Just like you don't need to actually understand the complexities of how HTTP actually functions to build a web application that uses HTTP, right? And so it, just, it, could, it lowers the bar in some sense to, to, to build your own sovereign chain. Whether or not we wanted to fork off of something else, I think that was going to be, because this design is, is remark, remarkably different from pretty much everything else out there in terms of how it's going to be structured, it, to, to kind of fork from something else like Bitcoin, for example, uh, wouldn't be, you know, very viable. It would cause a, like, a humongous rewrite and not to mention the block time it wouldn't be fast enough. The transactions per second wouldn't be fast enough because this chain needs to be faster than more or less most chains put together in some sense, right? Because you have transactions coming in from all the different chains, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Litecoin, and Binance, all, all these things coming in and it needs to be able to process those things as fast as they're coming in. You can't be the slowest chain out there like Bitcoin is. It wouldn't actually hold up and be practical in, in the real world. Um, so it was decided early on to, to be Cosmos, and that was definitely a right choice from my perspective. It's a very strong ecosystem, very uh, great framework, and something I'll, I'm sure I'll continue to use in, in for future projects. I was just given um, a question, and uh, I, I think it's also uh, another part of the, the, the cool mechanics of how ThorChain keeps all these swaps possible and keeping them secure. And I wanted to ask it to Chad because uh, uh, it goes right along with that last question about the choice for Tendermint. So 
all of us uh, here in this room, we've used Bitcoin before, or we've used a variety of different blockchains before. And um, on most blockchains, there's the risk of a reorg uh, or an orphaned block, where uh, a block may have one confirmation, then all of a sudden uh, it gets orphaned and some other uh, uh, tip of the blockchain takes over. Um, systems need to account for this. Now, ThorChain straddles a variety of different blockchains, each with a completely different architecture. The ThorChain blockchain itself uses Tendermint, but it's observing the Bitcoin blockchain, which is, uses proof of work, and the Ethereum blockchain, which uses a different style of proof of work. How does ThorChain keep it all together so that when a, an orphan happens, which is somewhat common in, uh, in Bitcoin world, uh, it doesn't wreck the system? Because I, um, I, I can imagine if, if you're sending a swap of Bitcoin in to get Ether out, and all the Thor nodes detect that Bitcoin has gone in, so, hey, let's send the Ether out. But then that Bitcoin that came in gets reorged out of the main chain. Now the Thor chain system itself is insolvent. So uh, uh, can you speak to the security of how uh, Thor chain solves this? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Uh, that's one of the complexities with dealing with a cross-chain platform like this is dealing with these kind of complexities. Uh, in this case, how ThorChain deals with this is that um, it's trying to evaluate how many confirmations, how many confirmations do you need to wait on a chain before you say, okay, this this is you know a very safe transaction to say this is not going to get reorged out, and how do you do that in a way that not only applies to Bitcoin but the logic also applies to Ethereum and Monero and you know anything else out there. Right. Um, the the stance that the, the, the team has taken on this is effectively the the amount of funds being sent in the system relative to the amount of rewards of that of that chain relative to that of the number of confirmations needed. So, for example, Bitcoin is uh, has a, a block reward of six point two five bitcoins per block, and so if somebody were sending six point two five or less, uh, that would be one conf. And why is it one conf? Is because if you were to attack the network in this way and get a whole bunch of miners to build up multiple, you know, two blocks or three blocks or four blocks, the amount of money that it would cost to do so, you'd actually lose money in the end. Uh, that's the that's the general thesis. Now, on Bitcoin, we're, we're it's much more secure than you know something like uh, Ethereum uh, Classic, for example. Um, you only really need one conf in, in, in the vast majority of cases, and from a practical perspective. But the team actually takes a, it takes a much more conservative perspective and actually waits more confs is required. But if that ever does happen and something does get slipped through, that's what triggers what we call an errata transaction. And the errata transaction is a, another type of observation that the validators can make and say, oh, we, we acted upon this thing before, but now we're saying, it's been removed or undone. So go ahead and undo the transaction. So if somebody were to like, you know, provide liquidity to the network, that liquidity would be removed, for example. In a situation where somebody swaps, the, the swap is gone, the money is gone, and then the system uh, is no longer solvent, in which case how the code works as of today, if I'm not mistaken, uh, is that it gets so this the loss becomes socialized within the liquidity providers of that particular pool. But it's, that makes, that's what makes it important to decide upon what chains add to this network and what chains do not get added to this network. Ones that are very secure, like Ethereum and Bitcoin, for example, 
you really don't have to worry about it too much. Uh, it's very, very consistently, you know, in the green in a sense. But start adding, you know, smaller chains that, that don't have that economic power behind them. They become oftentimes less stable or less reliable and more likely to have this situation. So if you have you add, add a, a chain that's very um, insecure in some ways, you, that uh, an attacker could theoretically drain Bitcoin out of the system by using that weak point of that chain. So that's all going to be taken into account when the network decides, the community decides what chains to allow, what assets, not assets, what chains to allow in the network and which ones not to allow, which ones are secure, which one, what's the risk reward of this individual chains. And everybody's got to come to a consensus of what that's going to be. Changing topic a little bit. One of the things that I noted today in the Twitter sphere upon announcing this, you know, and I, I'm, I'm trying to convey to the world that this is, like a brand new thing that, that this has not been done before. And one of the major responses from people who are skeptical of that is they say, well, this has been done for years and they inevitably cite various atomic swap projects. Um, to anyone who, who wants to take the question, what is the main difference between how ThorChain liquidity pools work and how atomic swaps work, which have indeed been around for several years? I could talk about this maybe from a less than technical perspective, but that was actually what I was pretty interested to diving into because I actually looked at your tweet, Eric, and, and saw a number of people kind of responding and saying, you know, so-and-so technology has been around since 2017 or 2018 and doing this. And you know, while, while that may be true, I think the, you know, the real key here is the concept of peer-to-peer -peer versus peer-to-pool. And when you think about uh, peer to pool, uh, and, and seeing the success that something like Uniswap had in comparison to other DEXs previously built on Ethereum, I think that goes to show the success that Thorchain will likely have because of that structure. You know, prior to prior to Uniswap, and you think about a lot of the DEXs built on Ethereum, you know, the zero X relayers, uh, the you know, kind of peer to basically the order book models or the peer to peer models, those really struggled to bootstrap liquidity. They struggled to scale and they really had a difficult time kind of finding any type of, of use case. And as Uniswap came around and showed the I think innovation that is basically having liquidity pools, that is really the key differentiator versus how you've seen some of the maybe previous kind of attempts at having peer-to-peer -peer Bitcoin trading working in the past just because there, there isn't the liquidity there and you can have maybe a great structure of, of, a, of a trading system. But if, if you can't fill a one BTC order, who's going to you know, use that, that exchange? Nobody is. You're actually right with the difference of peer-to-peer uh, -peer versus peer-to-pool. While atomic swaps have been around for a long time, they require both participants to agree on two variables. The relative prices of the two assets are swapping and a quantity that they can both agree on to do that swap. Chances are people need to swap a lot more than that or a lot less than that. And finding two people to agree on both of those variables is a lot harder than having them agree on only one variable. And that is the relative price of these two assets. Pool-based systems only match that relative price and they don't care whether uh, one person is swapping a Satoshi or another person is swapping an entire Bitcoin. It'll just get done at the current price. Yeah, I remember early in Shapeshifts, uh, after we had founded Shapeshift in 2014, and we had a lot of people saying, like, hey, 
this is just going to be replaced by atomic swaps. Atomic swaps will replace this. And that was always kind of the meme of like, atomic swaps are coming and they're going to disintermediate shapeshift. Um, and we always followed that tech because kind of, I think, as we're proving today with integrating Torchain, it's not that we didn't want to be disintermediated. In many ways, we wanted that decentralized tech to exist. But there was always this problem with atomic swaps of like, it solves the exchanging this one asset on this chain to another asset on this chain, but it never solved the liquidity problem. And so I think um, what Thorchain has done is they're not just solving the swap one asset to another problem. They're also solving the liquidity problem at the same time using the AMM technology that something like Uniswap has pioneered. And that was really the missing piece because it wasn't just about how do I swap from one asset to another without trust? That was part of the problem, but it was never the entire problem. The important problem was how do you do that in a way and make sure the liquidity is always available and that no one needs to worry about that. And that's that's the beauty, I think, of what Thorchain has done here. Yeah, so I've had this conversation with many people, and the next question that they always ask me is, what about wrapped assets? I can trade WBTC on Uniswap, or I can trade, you know, wrapped versions of other assets on other automated market makers. How do you usually respond to them? I usually tell them that it's a it's a different asset and that requires a totally different uh, aspect of trust. If you're going to be using WBTC, at some point you convert your Bitcoin to WBTC. How are you converting that? Uh, in, the, in the case of WBTC, there's a company that sits in between. They accept Bitcoin on one side, they issue WBTC on the other side. And that WBTC is as good as that Bitcoin as long as that company sits there in the middle. Because you know that at any time, if you want to go back from WBTC to your, your old BTC, you can just send it to that company. But what happens if that company gets hacked? What if they go bankrupt and shut down uh, or run into uh, some, some other kind of an issue where they're no longer available? Now, suddenly, the price of WBTC diverges from BTC because there's additional risk involved. So yes, wrapped assets are great in some respects, but they do require a whole other set of risks. Uh, Thorchain has risks too. I mean, you have to trust that the code is written properly, just the same as you have to trust the code for Uniswap is written properly. But you don't have to trust with Thorchain that some entity is going to exist tomorrow like you would have with WBTC. I think even if you look at the single chain uh, version of ChaosNet, which I think was great in terms of proving the, the concept, but I think you also saw the limitations when you have operated exclusively on Binance Chain or BEP2 assets, because with wrapped assets, there's typically some type of bridge or onboarding off uh, onboarding offboarding choke point, which right now for you know finance coins is um you know obviously finance itself or for like solana type tokens it's ftx itself and i think that often limits the number of potential users of a product and when you're able to have these native assets it, it definitely expands the pool and the accessibility of these assets for way more people than when you have to you know, perhaps go into a centralized exchange kyc um, or, you know, for other, you know, individuals to something else. So I think it really expands access significantly. Yeah, with yeah. the wrapped assets, I've always just kind of viewed that as like moving the problem off another level. Um, and I think Michael described that well, but like it never really solved the fundamental problem of I want to be able to go from this one chain to another chain. And wrapped assets are a solid solution if you think that the future is not multi-chain. 
I know at Shapeshift, our perspective has always been since 2014 that the future is multi-chain, that there will be at least more than one useful blockchain, and these things will need to be able to connect and interact with each other natively uh, without anything in between. And wrapped assets will never solve that problem. So um, as long as you believe in a multi-chain future, wrapped assets will just never quite be enough. There's also the the question of the different parties using the system, right? So a trader who might want to move out of ETH into Bitcoin from a price exposure perspective, maybe that trader is perfectly fine with the WBTC for some period of time. But I'll tell you who's not fine with WBTC. The long-term Bitcoin holder who only wants to ever hold his Bitcoin and never wants to trust any other party. That person is not going to be comfortable putting a significant amount of Bitcoin in a wrapping and then putting it into Uniswap's uh, liquidity pool. In Thorchain, they don't have to do that. They only have the protocol risk. So they can put their native Bitcoin into a native Bitcoin pool and never have to worry about the wrapping. And I don't think that will attract every Bitcoiner to want to do that with all of their Bitcoin, of course, but it certainly moves the bar to be larger. And that means a deeper liquidity pool and that begets further liquidity. And that deeper liquidity pool is um, is sort of magnified on Thorchain compared to how Uniswap works or SushiSwap works. With, uh, with these AMMs on Ethereum, you, you can create a variety of different pairs between a whole bunch of individual tokens, uh, a USD token to the Uni token or the Uni token to some other token. That means that all the liquidity that you're going to be trading on all of those uh, all, all those pairs, it, it's fragmented across all of those pairs. Uh, there could be a significant amount of Ethereum available, like raw Ether, to, to be swapped. But when it's divided amongst 100 different tiny pools paired with uh, 100 different uh, assets, you, you lose that, that liquidity. With Thorchain's design, instead of pairing a whole bunch of different assets together, everything is just paired against Rune. If it supports 10 assets, that means that there's only 10 pools, period. Uh, that concentrates the liquidity into uh, fewer but larger pools, making the slip fee less for everybody and making trades uh, much, uh, much more frictionless for everybody. I think the people, thing that people miss about the whole wrapped asset thing is that the only reason why we even talk about wrapped assets is because... Uh, predominantly because Ethereum kind of is the king of DeFi right now, right? It is mostly apps that are there. And so we're just like trying to get, you know, our different assets to fit into like our square shaped assets into the round peg of Ethereum. You know what I mean? That doesn't actually make any sense at all from a fundamentalist perspective or a first principles perspective. It's almost like saying, uh, I'm going to, you know, pave a street and only uh, Ford cars will be able to drive down the street. But if you have a BMW, you have to buy like a really large skateboard made by Ford and put your BMW on the skateboard, and then you can drive it down the street. It's, it's a ludicrous concept. It makes no real sense other than the sense that you just that people have already kind of said that Ethereum has to be the king of all DeFi, and that's not the case at all. And so what the, the really critical thing that I think people are missing, uh, and it was in the space generally, is that it makes no sense to bring your various assets to a DeFi application and rather bring DeFi itself to your assets or to your chain. We shouldn't have to treat Bitcoin as a second class citizen and say, okay, you're on Bitcoin, so you need to go through these extra steps and you do all this like wrap assets and then you need to add 
additional risk to your profile by trusting WBDC or whatever bridge you're going to be talking about. And then you take on the risk of that ERC-20 card contract of that WBDC ERC-20 contract. Then you can get access to various DeFi applications. That is treating Bitcoin, which is the most important chain in, in, in crypto, as a second-class citizen. That is horseshit. That is despicable. We, do, we should not be doing that as, uh, as, a, as a field. It makes no sense to me. Instead, what we should be doing is building DeFi applications that allows anybody to walk up with any asset from any chain and get treated identically the same as anybody else. That's how it should be designed. And I think that's what ThorChain is pushing forward uh, conceptually in a larger sense from the industry is this idea. I think that's why ThorChain will inevitably, in any chain that's similar to this, will inevitably win because it's going to have the liquidity. Any chain that can support the total $2 trillion worth of crypto assets we have today is going to win out in terms of liquidity than some asset, some, some DeFi application on Ethereum that only supports $450 out of, uh, billion out of the over $2 trillion worth of assets. It's just the inevitable math of it. So. Anybody who wants to create a DeFi application should really start think about going the more difficult but more substantial route of like building your own chain from scratch that allows you to interact with any chain across the sphere. Uh, I think what um, Chad said is so important. I would say you know the big thing that got me excited about ThorChain um, is the same thing that got me really excited about Uniswap, which is its ability to support the long tail, and especially for the long tail, liquidity uh, fragmentation is much more painful. So it naturally uh, uh, concentrates into a single area in the beginning. So if you want to trade, you know, one specific asset, the first place you should go should be ThorChain. And if you look at, you know, the way that Uniswap really rose, it wasn't because it had the best ETH USDC pair. It was because it supported uh, the most number of tokens. And the same thing happened with the sexes, right? Which is that, uh, you know, Binance and uh, you know, the other centralized exchanges that grew, uh, you know, basically out of nowhere in 2017, 2018, et cetera, came from, uh, you know, supporting the most number of assets as quickly as possible. So there was no need to go anywhere else. And I think that's going to be a real advantage for ThorChain uh, because it has the most liquidity and given the unique, um, you know, bonding, uh, uh, you know, having Rune as the, the pair asset, it makes it really seamless for a LP to provide that liquidity in a way that you wouldn't necessarily want to do it on a uh, centralized exchange. And, you know, at, at the, just for a fun thought exercise, kind of at the risk of getting a little ahead of ourselves, I, I know, uh, Chad and I we've talked before about some of the kind of primitives you guys would like to build on top of uh, ThorChain in the future. So we'd love to kind of get your thoughts there. Yeah. Uh, so as of today, the ThorChain project has effectively solved probably one of the most difficult problems of uh, being able to just in a decentralized way to go cross-chain, which just took the team, you know, a year and a half or, or, or more, whatever the hell it was, to do so. That's a difficult problem to solve. Nobody else has solved it yet, and there's a good reason why nobody else has. That's a lot of reasons why we oftentimes see other cross-chain projects today just connect to EVM-based chains like you know, Binance Smart Chain and Ethereum, because those are kind of the low-hanging fruit, easier way of going forward, while completely ignoring the most important asset of all, which is obviously Bitcoin. But now that that problem has been solved, and we have that kind of core fundamental, that kind of, uh, that base layer, there's all sorts of very interesting things we can do on top of that that nobody else can do in the space, right? We can talk about actually having a, a synthetic asset that is that we can 
given to the, the greater uh, ecosystem of Cosmos. We can talk about uh, composites that have in like ETF like indexes. We can talk about having uh, lending and borrowing similar to Aave and Compound, but do it in a way that actually uh, allows you to, to do a cross chain. Uh, we can do fixed uh, interest rates for um, those those lending and borrowing uh, uh, platforms. There's all sorts of things that that uniquely uh, Thorchain can do that 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 anything on Ethereum simply is cannot do. It's fun, fundamentally the way it's designed. It's coded itself into a corner, and it cannot compete in that sense. And so, uh, in the near future, over the coming like six months or so, the team is very uh, interested in moving forward, and not just solving swaps across chain, but also doing really important things in this, in this space, like lending and borrowing. Yeah, I think that aspect of yield, uh, especially when it comes to native Bitcoin, is underappreciated with Thorchain. I mean, I think Thorchain is still probably relatively underappreciated across the entire crypto community, other than those who have been following it for quite a while. But it's not just about that ability to decentralize swap. By combining this with this AMM tech, it really allows people to gain yield on their Bitcoin. And that is something that I know a lot of Bitcoiners are interested in. And we've seen that with services like BlockFi and Celsius and some of these places where people are either you know depositing their collateral to gain interest or to also borrow against it. But being able to do that in a non-custodial decentralized manner is such a big deal that you don't have to trust a centralized company to get yield on your Bitcoin and potentially have far higher yields. I think that that is going to become the actually major narrative of Thorchain over time uh, that people don't understand about it. It's not just about the swaps. It's about everything else that it allows. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I think this surprises a lot of people when I talk to them about the project is, is the yield that you earn is always paid out in the assets that you provide. So you don't have, we're not forcing upon you to hold a particular asset like Rune or whatever. If you want to provide Bitcoin and get Bitcoin back, that's great. Go for it. More power to you. Right. And in, in these cases of like you mentioned BlockFi and Celsius, you know, they're a centralized uh, interest bearing system that is currently uh, struggling. Right. I think it's like Bitcoin's at like half a percent interest in this because largely because GBDC is, you know, let's just say it's struggling in a sense. Uh, and if BlockFi is uh, interested in, in getting back a higher yield to their users, I think they should seriously consider, um, you know, using Thorchain as a, as a back end to providing Bitcoin uh, on the behalf of their users to the Thorchain network, earning uh, an, an interest on that. Um, what that interest is, we'll see. Uh, probably around 30, 40%, I guess, 50% maybe. And take that yield and give it back to their customers. I think that'll that'll do them, them well as a, as a company. It'll <laughs> do really well for their user base as well. well. I'd like to add something to that that I think is really important. Like the, the whole ethos of Bitcoin generally is about immutable, permissionless money. And the moment that you deposit your Bitcoin to BlockFi, you lose that attribute. And that's that's really tragic, right? So with ThorChain, someone can now deposit Bitcoin without losing the immutability that makes Bitcoin so great. When you put Bitcoin into a ThorChain liquidity pool, the code and only the code governs what happens to that and governs what uh, governs who can pull it out. There is no human intervention there. There is no policy or terms of service that can change while your money is in that pool. Um, I think this is this is massive, and the the Bitcoiners who come to realize this, I think, will start to strongly prefer 
an immutable open borderless system like Thorchain versus a central custodian that is bound to jurisdictional rules such as BlockFi. And now you've touched on probably my favorite aspect of Thorchain. And it's a unique aspect that you can't find in any other blockchain. And, and that's the fact that you can use Thorchain without ever touching the Rune token. That's never existed before. If you want to use an Ethereum smart contract, you need Ether to interact with it. If you want to use something on the Litecoin network or the any network, you need the native token for that blockchain. But not so with Thorchain. It is possible for you to swap Bitcoin to Ether uh, without ever touching Rune. It's possible for you to earn yield on your Bitcoin without ever touching Rune. And that, I think, is one of the coolest aspects that we've never seen before in the blockchain space. Yeah, well, that's actually a very important thing. And conceptually, the only thing you need to be able to use this network is possibly a Bitcoin signature, right? You don't, you don't need to give anybody your email address. You don't need to acquire some token, some token or some coin. You don't need to download some specific UI. Actually, the only requirement of the system is that you can make a Bitcoin signature. If you could do that, you have complete access to the system, same as anybody else in the world. That is a very important thing that I think a lot of people don't quite grasp yet. That's, that is freedom in its, in, its, in, its, in its truest form, in my opinion. Hey, Chad, what do you think you just on yield farming here? Like, Do you think that ThorChain is the state where people deposit their idle assets and they hold them there for actually long periods of time versus just jumping farm to farm? Because I feel like you guys might usher in an era of you know, long-term passive, you know, not staking, but liquidity pool provision. Yeah, I think so. I wouldn't say people should do that today, uh, give the network some time to, to kind of mature and, and prove its resiliency and this kind of thing. But eventually, yes, I absolutely believe that to be true. I think what's unique here is that um, not only does a slip-based model produce more ROI than with the kind of standard XYK model that you see in other implementations of DEXs, uh, but you also have block awards, the reserve in the Thorchain network called uh, that has 200 million rune in it. Not today, but it will, will, we're ramping up to that point slowly over time as the network you know gets more uh, reliable. And so that all that you know 200 million rune, which is worth what is that like over two billion dollars, uh, is just sitting inside the network and secreting block rewards to the node operators and to the pools and give them additional yield on whatever you know whatever however they provide liquidity to the network. And then on top of that, you know downstream once we add um, lending and borrowing to the system. You're going to have even more returns on that. And that's all done in a way that's completely sustainable. That is not a flash in the pan kind of thing that we sometimes see in the yield farming world of, the, oh, you can provide here and get high yield and to quickly move over there. You can actually reliably move uh, assets into this network and reliably move and earn interest in a way that's completely sustainable. Uh, and and, and that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty huge from my perspective. Um, I don't want to have the stress personally of trying to move my 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 uh, liquidity from you know contract A to contract B or uh, that's just too much for me personally. But I'd rather just put in something like Thorchain where I know it's it's well designed system that will reliably earn yield for me for uh, literally to the end of time. And Chad, one last question from my end, and I'll leave it to everyone else to, to keep going because this is incredible. One thing we haven't really talked about is just the project decentralizing the community. How do you guys plan to, you know, quote, leave the project, I guess, and, and who takes over? What's that process like? And what's the timeline for that? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, so, so the core team is actually rather small, uh, if you want to call them that. It's like around like eight people or so, eight or nine people. It's really not that much. You don't really need that many people, to be honest with you. Um, but 
more money is actually spent today out of the treasury of the project on funding other teams, whether that be block explorers or UIs or also, you know, dashboards, uh, you know, all sorts of different stuff. And if you've got a really good idea that you want to get funding for, uh, you know, reach out to, to the team here. We'll, we'll be interested to talk to you. And so over time, the intent is to educate the, the community as a whole, how the whole thing system works, get more contributors to the code so people have more mindshare system. And then the intention is on uh, July of 2022 is a plan obsolescence of the team. And effectively, um, the treasury is dispersed to a whole host of different groups and teams to continue building on different aspects of the ecosystem and let the, the greater community take more and more uh, control of the system. Uh, I don't see this to be terribly different than the way Satoshi did it. You know, in the earlier days, Satoshi did almost, at least a large chunk of the work, him, Hearst, they, selves. Uh, and then over time, you know, you, you know, pull away uh, and eventually just step back entirely. Uh, I expect myself and other members of the team to do the same uh, in the coming, you know, uh, year or two or three, depending upon, you know, what makes sense. But the intention is that uh, is, is a community-led project and it's going to be a community-maintained project. And I, myself, and, and other individuals that, you know, were part of it, the earlier phase of it will phase themselves out uh, and they can we will not have a you know a single face or Jesus-like figure that other projects seem to have or, or love uh, on this project, myself included. That's awesome, Chad. I know we're gearing up like over the hour. If anybody has to hop, you know, feel free. Um, but love to kind of keep going if, if you guys want to. Yeah, happy. To yeah, I go. Huh? Yeah, I gotta hop off. See you later. So, All right, thanks, bye. guys. Cheers. Thanks for joining. Happy launch day. Thanks. <laughs> bye, Eric. All right, Chad, we gave you 30 uh, seconds to catch your breath. <laughs> Who's next? I, I got a question if uh, you're up for it. <laughs> yes, you're So I was wondering if you guys have done any wargaming around what, um, you know, might happen as, uh, you know, the lending markets for Rune becomes more liquid. One of the things that's concerned me is as it becomes easier to borrow Rune, the, um, you know, two-thirds threshold for uh, needing honest nodes may not be enough. Um I'm just, I'm just wondering how your team has, has worked through that problem uh, when someone could actually borrow Rune, run potentially enough nodes to corrupt the network, uh, steal assets, and um, not actually have uh, potentially as, as much as they could, could gain by stealing the assets locked. Uh, this is chain. a fun one. Are you, are you saying in the, in the context of like if, if Torchain were to have, have lending and borrowing, people just borrowing a, a lot of Rune and then using that to effectively cyber-attack the network, does mean? Yes, because they could presumably steal their own collateral they placed to borrow that initial rune in the first place. Yeah, sure. So, well, so first thing is this uh, structure of lending and borrowing hasn't been solidified quite yet. There's an article on, or an issue on GitLab people can read if they want to know the current thinking of the implementation. Uh, but it is subject to change you know, in the coming months or so. So it hasn't really been quite solidified quite yet. But uh, in order to do the attack vector that you're talking about is you would have to um, borrow enough rune to a cyber network. So let's just say that's approximately maybe 50% of a circling supply of rune, um, something like this. Or you, or you, or you can take 25%, it doesn't even matter. But you would have to lock up 2x or 3x that, depending upon how the, how the lending and borrowing markets are designed uh, at an interest rate. And so it would actually be cheaper and more effective 
for you to uh, just buy the rune and then attack it that place. That way you would, wouldn't have to spend three times the amount of money to do so. Um, but if yeah. you're going to, if you're going to deposit, you know, let's say that the network is worth 10 billion and you have 30 billion of Bitcoin that you deposit, uh, you know, into the network in order to get enough collateral. Um, what I'm saying is, is that you can actually steal back the collateral you posted. So this whole thing actually costs you nothing, arguably. Not quite. Go for it, Michael. Yeah, so um, I, I, I game theory this out a little bit. Uh, and thanks to Chad um, answering a lot of my questions, he helped me see and understand why a simple attack on the network won't work. So if you are Mr. Moneybags and you do have $30 billion and there's $10 billion locked up in uh, ThorChain, you could, in theory, run uh, enough nodes so that you're able to steal all of the funds in the Asgard. Well, let's add some numbers to this to, to see how this works out. You, you would need to buy Rune on the market or uh, borrow Rune from somewhere. So sure, let's say you, you deposit a, a crap load into um, liquidity pools and now you borrow enough um, Rune so you can run a lot of nodes. First of all, it'll be difficult to get all of your nodes in at the same time because of the way that churns work. You can't just, uh, if there's going to be 100 nodes, you can't just... YOLO 66 nodes into the network at the same time. You will need to at some point get two-thirds of the nodes in order to uh, steal funds from the network. But let's say you're very patient and churn after churn, you get one or two nodes in, you get one or two nodes in, and over a protracted period of time, maybe it'll take you four months or six months, you manage to get that sweet spot and you've got 66 nodes out of the 100 that are operating. You have bonded a lot of rune to make that happen. Now, all the nodes have to bond uh, approximately twice as much uh, funds that are in all the pools. So if you steal every last Satoshi and every last way out of all of the pools, you would have still had to bond twice as much rune uh, in order to steal everything out of the pools. But hey, this was borrowed and you still have the backing uh, token, so that's fine. You can just start selling everything and, uh, and make it up on the other end. Problem is, when two-thirds of the nodes have dumped all of the, uh, the Asgard contents, everyone will look at that and say, ThorChain has failed. There's some kind of an event, ThorChain has failed. The price of Rune will plummet through to the grave, and now, uh, as you try to uh, sell it or, or, or return it somewhere, you will end up with less than what you started with. It sounds almost like it's more likely you're going to see a centralized exchange hacked than that entire string of events that you just described actually occur in real life. Well, to, to Tyler's point, though, I think part of what he's trying to say is, is that if, you, if, you're, if you're doing lending and borrowing to get the rune, you're actually not acquiring the rune, not actually buying the rune, you're just, you're just exactly. lending something. And then when it gets cyber you steal back your initial collateral that you used to attack the system. In order for that to be, I have to think about that more, but like, I think that's, in order for that to, that to work, whenever you lend, lend yourself the rune, you, you put a bunch of Bitcoin in, you know, or whatever the asset might be, or it could be synthetic Bitcoin potentially. Actually, it won't be this, uh, Bitcoin it has to be liquidity units or, or synthetic Bitcoin or, or rune itself. In this case, you wouldn't use rune. But, uh, in order to do so, 
whenever you take out the rune of a pool, somebody else needs to put that rune back in, right? We give you a thousand rune for to say in this particular lending uh, contract, somebody else needs to put a thousand rune back in effectively to, to arbitrage the pool. And as you do this, the scarcity of rune would increase over time because you're like just huddling, you know, 50% of the rune somehow, some way, because you have, I don't know, apparently you have tens of billions of dollars to, to do all this. And it becomes increasingly, increases the price of rune and therefore, the value of the asset that you're using to cybertech the network will probably be worth more than the, the collateral you put into the system. Do you know what I mean? Because you're actually increasing the value of Rune more so than the value of the collateral that you're putting because you're sucking more than half of the half of all of the Rune in the circulation <laughs> into your own personal wallet. That would be an interesting uh, play. I'm not gonna, I'm not sure. I think the other, the other difficulty is also because I... I, I, I Really understand in terms of that attack factor. I think you know if you were to get into that situation where you actually did have two thirds of the network and and then you pulled it off, you know obviously the price of ruin would move crater, and then you could return what you borrowed for pennies of the dollar, and, and that's how you kind of turn the profit. But I think it's incredibly difficult to actually get two thirds of the nodes in the network because of, of the fact that the oldest nodes shuffle out, and so it, it's the the element. I think the hardest part is actually having the two-thirds of the nodes simultaneously because you, you effectively have to beat out everyone else and 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 maintain, you know, effect like you, you basically have to be two out of every three coming in for as long as it takes for the entire network to cycle through. Which and hope I, your old nodes don't churn out before you're done getting all 66 in. Right. Yeah, so basically yeah, the idea is like you're, you're of the next 99 that come in, you have to be two-thirds of them. And, and that's insanely difficult. Yeah, there's yeah, so, that so factor of the churn that really makes this hard. You have to actually assume that you're going to be able to get both two-thirds into the network and keep everything else there at first. And you can't, it's not like you can churn them all in at once either. Only so many nodes churn in at once. So this would have to be like almost like a month-long attack as you basically churn in node after node to get all your nodes in and hope that none of them churn out at that time, which, you know, diminishes your chances greatly of ever pulling this off. So yeah, I, I guess the... I guess there are two two points. So um, the first to Chad's point, which is because you're borrowing the token, I don't think it should have much effect on the actual circulating supply of ThorChain at all. Because again, you're borrowing the token, but you're not selling it on the open market. So even if you know the the price of room were to increase disproportionate to whatever asset you used to uh, for collateral, uh, you always have that ability to you know pay that down or deposit more because um, you're not actually selling the borrowed rune. So I, I don't know what effect that would actually have on the market, but that, that could be very interesting to um, game out. Obviously, the, the borrow, borrowing price, um, so the, the, the interest um, you'd be paying to borrow that amount of rune would skyrocket. And uh, you know, having something you know, where the interest rate is not capped at you know, the very artificial rates that um, you know, Ave and Compound have could be a really good defense mechanism against someone trying to conduct this attack. Um, I would also say that, you know, we, we keep saying, you know, two thirds in order to really take control of the network, but, you know, you don't necessarily, and I may be wrong here, you know, you only need two thirds to really be sure that you're uh, in full control. But if you could get 40%, uh, I, I believe you could still wreak enough havoc. Uh, maybe that's wrong, but to, um, you know, make, make your, uh, your short position very valuable by, you know, threatening the uh, perceived stability of the network um, and causing the price of room to tank. 
on that. But you're not short. Which, but so the, the the thing in that situation, though, in order to wreak that havoc, your uh, your ruin that you're borrowing has to be locked up. And realistically, if you know if you want to make it a profitable situation, you have to wreak havoc and be able to exit and then buy back cheaper and profit that way. But you know, like if, if you're wreaking havoc without actually stealing assets, then you're just going to return the same quantity of ruin at a potentially lower price. But there isn't really yeah. like an attack vector where you're like you're removing assets for yourself. If you had one third of the nodes, the havoc you could wreak is halting the network, stopping the chain. And if uh, if the chain stops then any rune that happens to be on any exchange will start selling because Thorchain is suddenly less useful. You would need two-thirds in order to spend from the Asgards. Uh, the, 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 the TSS threshold is set up so that no individual node and no uh, microcosm of the nodes can spend from the Asgards. Only a majority, uh, like a two-thirds majority, can spend from the Asgards. So Anybody who does uh, have a minority of the nodes and wreaks havoc, they're just shooting their room price in the foot. Gotcha. So, so realistically, the only way this could be profitable would be uh, either getting two thirds of the nodes, and 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 I think just the logistical difficulty of pulling that off is uh, is quite good defense. Or you could actually halt the network if you had thirty five percent of the of the nodes, but that would also require that you have uh, an off chain short of rune. That then hopefully that, that you would hope at least to then close at a at a lower price at than which you started. Either way, yeah. I feel like this would take a long time, and it would be pretty much visible on chain and probably off chain if you're talking about centralized exchanges through the funding rate. And this person would probably get short squeezed into oblivion. <laughs> and all the, the capital they have locked up in the nodes that they're running to to cause this havoc, they they had to buy those runes or they had to borrow those runes from somewhere. There's an economic cost to having those runes in those 33 nodes. Uh, and when the price tanks, all of that uh, economic setup that they just built goes down to the floor. You know, what's interesting, as I think about this, this interesting, this is an interesting question. Thanks for asking. Uh, I think what's interesting to me is that the more rune that is actually put into the network, either on the bond side or the LP side, the more difficult it is to, to do this attack that you're talking about. So if theoretically speaking, let's just say that 100% of the rune was either bonded or you know provided as liquidity on the, on the LP side, then you, this attack would be not economically feasible or possible. If it's only 10% in the network at a given time, then it becomes more more viable. But I'm hoping that over time um, that the you know people who are holders of rune will want that capital to be not dead capital, but but active capital that actually you know produces yield for them and so the incentive will be put more and more on the lps or more and more on the bond side and the more that happens the less there will be free room to acquire to do that i think from my, from my yeah I, I think it'll be really interesting to see how that works especially with the lending markets and if the incentive pendulum is affected by the amount of capital in the lending pools um you know that could could be a defense mechanism against this attack factor as well. But yeah, I, I think it'll be interesting to see it play out. One of the interesting things here is that like in most Cosmos chains, the in order to attack the network, you need you just need not a supermajority of nodes, you need a supermajority of the of the bond, you know, of whatever the coin is of, of that network. Uh, so that in that case it's actually easier to attack those systems because of that, because you can just have one node and just put 
two thirds of the bond and, and that one node, and then boom, you have basically you know more or less quote unquote root access to do what the hell you want to do. And now the no other nodes can do much about it because they have to adhere to the same rules what you're deciding because you have the most of, of the votes in a sense. But Thorchain is different in this way. We have to we have to enroll our own staking um, module, if you want to call it that, or bonding module, if you want to call it that, and and it's done by nodes, and that just makes it a lot more difficult, at least in my opinion, to get to that place to attack it. For sure, but it's still yeah. viable. It's still, it's still possible to, to, to do it. it was, you just have to outbid everybody else to, to get what Yazan said two thirds of the time, which would be uh, astronomically large amount of money to do that. An yeah, economically rational actor wouldn't do it, but an economically irrational actor could. And it also assumes that there, you know, other nodes that stay in there. I guess if you get two thirds, you could do it. But I'm, uh, I think it's a rational assumption to assume that some degree of these nodes are actually like just aligned with the mission of Thorchain, that they're basically intuitively on the same page and they they want to see this thing succeed. And so you, that also makes it much more difficult if there are any validators or any actors or some sufficient number that are basically intrinsically aligned in that way. It just makes that attack that much harder. Um, and I think that's definitely the case in the early days. Maybe that won't remain the case over the long period as it becomes more just economic games. But I just think it's a really hard attack to pull off. It's not impossible, definitely feasible, but very, very difficult. Even if they're not aligned with the mission, they are uh, likely economically rational. For, uh, for uh, Every single node operator has invested you know, tens of millions of dollars in their own capital to, to do this. If they see some other actor is uh, uh, gearing up a bunch of nodes to try to do something like this, you can bet that they're going to act together to try to uh, pr uh, protect the network, not just for ideological reasons, but for personal profit. Yeah, and, and that's really the game that we need to see play out over time, and that is the experiment that Thorchain is is bringing into the sphere. Is it's the economic experiment? Are the economics aligned in such a way to keep the network safe and to keep the validators acting rationally? And I I think many of us on the stage are betting that yes, it is. That we we've, we've studied this well enough to think that this is well designed enough that we do think the economic incentives will keep this thing safe. Uh, but that is very much an experiment, especially when. We just launched this thing to, you know, or not we, but the community just launched Multi-Chain Chaos Net today. So we'll have to see how that plays out over time. But I think it's a pretty good bet that it will remain safe. Hey, Chad. You, you know something that's actually really interesting is it's counterintuitive. It's kind of fascinating to think about. If there are is an actor that's trying to cyber attack the network like we're talking about, okay, they might go for that attempt to do so, which is very difficult as we're discussing. If there's two actors trying to do it, it actually makes the network more secure. <laughs> And so the more you know, individuals who are out there all trying to cyber attack the system, they're actually fighting each other and making each other's you know task more difficult. And so this actually, the more people attack in the network, it actually it is the better for the network. That is a great that, point, Chad. That's a great point. Hey guys, yeah, it really, you, really. Just, sorry, go ahead. Tom. Just to switch gears, because I have a couple people ask me, and I know we kind of all know the answer, but for those who don't. What do you guys view as Thorchain's biggest competition? And I mean, down the line, are there any scenarios in which Thorchain can't be successful? Like, let's say we live in an ETH-only world and everyone's just using Uniswap. Obviously, I don't think that's going to be the case. But what do you view project-wise as the most competition? And then what do you view, you know, steady state-wise of the world where it might be not the best environment for Thorchain? That one for me? Yeah, anybody who wants to take it. So, I, I mean, to be honest, over the past, you know, Year and a half, two years, my head's been down in code, and, and I haven't keep my finger on the pulse as tightly as other members of the team have. But 
whenever I poke my head up and look at some other competing project, and I'm, I'm not going to name names or any of these things, but I find that their economics is just done in a way that is not going to work. Right. Either because it's going to force them to become centralized because they can't get centralized because if they decentralize the way that economics work, it's actually possible and economically viable to simultaneously that network. And it, it's, it, in my opinion, it would only be a matter of time because you could, somebody could look at, look at the DeFi application or chain or whatever and say, oh, if I spend, you know, $400 million, I can actually walk away with $700 million. And I think somebody would make that choice to do so because, because, you know, it makes sense from an economic perspective for them to do, you know, as a rational actor to some degree. Uh, I haven't seen any other competitor actually implement the the safety of the assets in a viable way. Rune is it's actually designed in a way that the, the bond that secures the assets goes up and down with the value of the assets that it's securing. And so you can't get into a situation where you know, the Bitcoin goes crazy high and now the Bitcoin's worth and the pools is worth more than the bond. And therefore, now somebody can attack it and walk away with more money than they walked in with. That can't really happen in, in, in Thorchain's case. But I see that particular problem in almost every other project that I look at that's trying to compete with what Thorchain's doing. And, and in some of these cases, those projects today are actually centralized and the, the team runs all of their nodes. Uh, and they have no viable way, to, to my knowledge at least, to actually to, to decentralize. Because I know if they do so, they will really, uh, you know, put the, the customers, uh, users' funds at risk. I don't. I'm not actually aware of anybody that's actually really as an honest go and actually has a, a good chance of providing competition at this point. I think I the think biggest competition is our centralized exchanges. That's the competition is actually against exchanges like Binance or Huobi or Coinbase um, and the other centralized exchanges. And I think they realize that too. I mean, if you look in Coinbase's S1, they talk about it as a risk factor. Um, and you can tell from what Binance is doing with Binance Smart Chain that they clearly understand that decentralized exchanges are a risk factor. So uh, I, I really think that's where the volume is right now. And I think that's what ThorChain is really competing against. So I did a bunch of research back in August, and then I did it again in February uh, on, on this exact topic. What other projects are out there that are doing the same thing that ThorChain is doing? And I typed as many uh, uh, keywords into um, into Google and into other search engines to just find things. And, and I, I settled on five projects. Three of them had some kind of legs, but all three of them were failing in one way or another. Uh, probably the, the most laughable one, it was, uh, so uh, two of these three were projects, just like ThorChain is a project, it's not a company. And then one of them was a company. And on this company's website, they make a big song and dance about how, you know, how evil cloud computing is like AWS and uh, DigitalOcean. So they're going to make things a lot more decentralized by running their own hardware and it's it's real metal in a real data center with an hsm and they're going to have this decentralized network but they control every single one of these nodes and i I was curious so i contacted them and said hey i'm interested in running one of these nodes how can i get involved i I believe in your your ethos of this project what do i need to do and they they essentially told me well we're not really accepting external nodes right now maybe in the future we're going to start to decentralize it then but for now we're going to run everything 
And I just thought that was laughable um, compared to how ThorChain is doing it, where everything is in the open. All the code is available for everybody to see. Anybody can uh, participate in the Telegram channels or Discord uh, rooms to, to get a sense of what the current problem is of the day and how they're solving it. There really is no other project out there that can come close to what ThorChain has done today. Yeah, we actually, as a team, we, we talked about the idea of, of running all the nodes ourselves for single-chain ChaosNet like months and months and months and months ago. Because if we run all the nodes, we don't have to worry about some of the complexities like churning and like all this stuff that we and now have functionality to. And we decided as a team to, to we're not going to start centralized and then try to, to decentralize later, but start from a decentralized perspective from, from day one. Uh, at least to, to a large degree, to a vast majority degree, and that was just a, a, it caused us to to launch the network at a much later time by a few months, single chain chaos net um, by that decision. But that we felt that was the right decision. And looking back now and looking at other bridges and how they've designed their systems, they've started centralized, and now they're trying to figure out a way to go to centralized, and they're really struggling to find a viable means of doing so, which is. Really unfortunate because they always said from the beginning, we're going to be this decentralized thing that does this thing, whatever it was. And now they don't really know how they're actually going to deliver on that promise. And then, yeah, in fact, there was, I shouldn't say this actually, <laughs> but that would have been a funny story. But, uh, but yeah, it, it's, it's, we always have said from the beginning um, that, that decentralization was, is, a, is an important component of how we want this thing to be run from day one. But we didn't want to be 100% decentralized because that would be somewhat uh, irresponsible. And so the team has actually implemented uh, administrative rights over the network uh, to some degree to allow us as a team to say, to be able to hold trading, for example, or, you know, if in case of some sort of, you know, problem arises, we can immediately address the situation. We, nobody has access to funds or anything like that. No one's, you know, can take any, any money or any of these things. Just, um, just the ability to, to, to be able to say, okay, we need halt trading because there's some sort of exploit in the system that needs to be uh, addressed quickly before you know additional funds are lost like that. But there, there is a plan, you know, uh, probably within six-ish months or so to take away um, uh, that administrative rights and just delete it from the entire system. So, guys, we got to wrap up a bit. Frankly, I have to get dinner at some point. This has been amazing. Um, let's let's just go around the room. Give everyone 30, 60 seconds. Just you know, closing thoughts. What you're excited for? Whole nine yards. This is incredible. John, we'll start with you. Yeah, it's been a it's been a great discussion. Obviously, for those who didn't know, we didn't actually talk about this, but Shapeshift actually launched our blockchain integration today, and you can find all sorts of media on that. And uh, we're just super excited to be part of this ecosystem. Um, and 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 what I'm really looking forward to is not just the ability to do the swaps for a chain we talked about which is obviously critical and super important, but how this will bring uh, DeFi directly to Bitcoin. Tyler down there actually tweeted something about this or retweeted something that he had posted, and I think it's a very salient point about that. And I'm just very excited for Bitcoin to basically enter the real world of DeFi as a you know Ethereum's kind of isolated it for the last year and couldn't be more excited about the possibilities there. Hey, John, before Michael goes, I just give you guys so much credit for having to keep that a secret for so long. I don't know how you guys did it. <laughs> Congrats. It was very hard. I'm very glad I don't have to uh, dodge that question. Anymore. So, yeah, thanks. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. I hear their security um, guy is a, is a real asshole, so that's probably how it happened. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, my closing thoughts, I guess, um, I'd say 
Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll close it the same way that, that I've, I've closed other uh, clubhouses about ThorChain. Uh, there's a lot of really cool technology being built on top of Bitcoin, doing a lot of really cool things. Uh, the Lightning Network, uh, Liquid Sidechains, uh, Blockstack, um, Rootstock. But out of all of the technologies that are building on Bitcoin, I think that ThorChain will have more impact and will will change the space far more than all those others combined. ThorChain really is a game changer when it comes to uh, crypto and when it comes to Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin uh, gave the model to replace banks, and I think ThorChain gives the model to replace centralized exchanges. And I can't wait to see what's built on top of that. Chad, you might need the whole 60 seconds, but shoot. Uh, my final thoughts are, you know, it's been a long road to get here. I'm super excited that we're, we're finally here. We finally launched. We finally delivered on the promises of the white paper. Um, and, and I'm super excited to see how this kind of pans out over the next few months. Uh, hopefully it goes just, just as well as single chain chaos went. And I'm also super excited about the future in the sense of, you know, lending and borrowing and all these other primitives that, that I think the Fortune Network will supply uh, to the, the greater ecosystem of, of crypto. Um to Michael's point, I totally agree that I think ThorChain is probably doing more for Bitcoin, more for Bitcoin Cash, more for Litecoin, more for pretty much every pretty lot of chains than any other uh, layer two chains or, or things built on top of that we're seeing today. And I'm super proud of that. Yeah. Um, no, it's just really exciting to see, you know, all the hard work that the team has done and then and, and over the years and kind of uh, the culmination of that and, and the launch here and um excited for ThorChain to kind of function as this liquidity vacuum that, that it's designed to be and, and uh, really bring a lot of utility to Bitcoin. And, and you know, realistically, you're kind of, I think maxis are, are going to be running out of ammunition in terms of FUD and, and, and how DeFi doesn't necessarily make sense. But, you know, excited to see how much Bitcoin really comes into this and, and finally see a true decentralized way to earn yield on idle Bitcoin. Yeah, could Build on that kind of for my final point. I think that maximalism of all firms is just the wrong answer. And especially when you look at blockchains, it's very obvious to me that we will have many blockchains that do different things. And most people don't yet realize that because they're trapped in this tribal mindset. To me, ThorChain is the way that people are going to break out of that tribal mindset. And I think this is going to be a sea change in the the emotions and, and kind of the beliefs of the crypto community to realize that the future truly is across many different blockchains. Cool. Um, yeah, you know, I think just to, to wrap it up and just following up on the, the thing I retweeted um, while we were talking is I really think that, you know, the launch of the cross-chain decks is, is really just the first step and, and the bringing of the rest of, you know, ThorFi to not only Bitcoin, but to, you know, the rest of cryptocurrency it really means that we're looking at, you know, a brand new project because it ends up being the glue between um, all other projects. It has no analog to date. Uh, I think competitors are going to have a very difficult time. And, you know, one of the things I've, I've told various people is that I think that for the first time, liquidity may actually be a sustainable moat in ThorChain in a way that I think that we'll see um, as transaction fees go to zero, that liquidity won't be a moat. Um, on any DEX that is in its own L1. So I think the future for ThorChain is very bright, and I'm very excited to you know be a, a part of this uh, experiment. It's awesome. And for everyone listening, that was Tyler Reynolds. Um, Tyler didn't get to give his intro because he joined a couple minutes late, but 
I just want to thank everyone here for coming on. Awesome discussion. Frankly, I just got to sit back and listen for most of it, which is incredible. And just a few disclosures. Obviously, Delphi Ventures, I'm sure a bunch of people on this call own Rune outright. Um, we have for a couple of years, so we're you know hugely optimistic and, and we'll back the team uh, well into the future. So thanks again for everyone for joining. Um, can't wait to share this on the, the pod channels as well. Thanks for hosting, Tom. Yeah, great thanks, discussion. Thanks, 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 everyone. Thanks, guys. See everyone soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon.